In Hollywood, there are entertainers who seek to entertain, and then there are entertainers who want to tell stories that change culture or policy, even if it's not the industry norm. All anyone talks about is writers, directors, actors, and everyone's climbing this ladder and everyone's pushing everyone down to get on top. And I just felt empty inside. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Art of Power. I'm Arthi Shahani. Today, Scott Budnick, the activist producer with the unlikely start. He cut his teeth making frat boy comedies and produced, among other films, The Hangover, one of the most successful R-rated comedies ever. But hanging out with celebrities at Caesars Palace Las Vegas did not fulfill him. Visiting teenagers in prison did. I turned to the kid next to me and I said, how are you doing? How was your week? And he said, I just got sentenced to 300 years to life in prison. And that was shocking, a travesty, disproportionate, unfair, unjust. I talk with Budnick about how he wrangled his way into the film industry, the turn of events that led him to become one of California's foremost advocates for criminal justice reform, why he left film to found the nonprofit Anti-Recidivism Coalition, and then how he pivoted back to creating film through a production company, One Community, with an explicitly political agenda. How do you change laws and policies to make them more fair and more just. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. To a night the four of us will never forget. So, Scott Budnick, to prepare for this interview, I watched two movies back to back The Hangover, the first in the franchise, uh, you know, where you got comedian Ken Jong to jump out naked from a trunk and attack some bachelors in Vegas. And then the other movie I watched was Just Mercy, where Michael B. Jordan plays the saintly criminal justice reformer, Brian Stevenson, who is trying to free innocent black men from death row. Just 10 miles from here, black people were pulled from their homes and lynched. Nobody talks about it. And I'm watching these two movies. I'm thinking to myself, Scott Budnick cannot be pigeonholed. No, I'm both of those things. Are you both of those things equally? I think I am both of those things equally because I'm kind of the the, the jokester. I, I was suspended a lot in school for trying to be a class clown, whether successful or not. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's definitely like part of me. But I don't know. I don't want to say I've had a depth because that sounds a little pretentious, but like you can also own it real (laughs) things plaguing our city, state world country, especially the plight of human beings has always like tugged at me. 
Mm-hmm. And I've always kind of preferred watching dramas to comedies. And I mm-hmm. love crying during movies. Mm-hmm. You're a crier. Yeah, for sure. And it's like those things, mm-hmm. I think, are so important to me and in, in who I am as well. Right, right. Scott Budnick grew up in Georgia and went to college just outside of Atlanta. During his freshman year, a production crew came to town to film a straight-to-TV movie about the Civil War. Budnick signed up to be an extra, and he loved it though film was not his original path. Let's talk about that path back chronologically. You were a pre-med student at Emory University. You were thinking you're going to follow in your father's footsteps. He was a doctor. What kind of doctor? He was an oral pathologist. He diagnosed cancer in the mouth and the neck. Okay. So you thought maybe I'm going to be like dad. But then you noticed this burgeoning film industry in Atlanta, and you decide you want to be a part of it. The bug bit you. And... I spoke with one of your first bosses, Cynthia Stilwell. Oh, God. Oh, God. (laughs) That's right. She's a good time. Oh, she is a good time. (laughs) And you basically nagged her for a job. You were like, Miss Stilwell, I would like to be your assistant. At first, she was like, go away. And then she's like, all right, fine. And I want to play for you what she had to say. He finally talked me into hiring him. He came to my office and I said, your first day is tomorrow and I want you downtown at 5 a.m. And he didn't show up at Mm. 5 a.m. And he didn't show up at 5.30 and he didn't show up at 6 o'clock. And when he finally came in, started telling me that his car broke down and whatever, I said, you're fired. I'm not, you're fired. Do you remember that? Oh, God, yeah. (laughs) I do remember that, and that that never happened again. But I, again, like that that morning was so important for me, right? It's so funny. I I listen to that, and I think about like today, mm-hmm. whatever twenty something years later, right? And I tell everyone, if you're not an hour early, you're late, right? If your call mm-hmm. times at five in the morning, be there at four. And so not only did it get me in line that conversation with her that morning, but it's like mm-hmm. informed uh, everything with how I I mentor. Mm. going forward. Mm -hmm. I'm really good at what I do today because of her. Why were you late and how did you get unfired? I don't remember. Uh, I do remember it was car issues, but I got unfired by being accountable and not making excuses and being like, okay, I'll be an hour early tomorrow and every day after that. And Mm. that was, that was our relationship moving forward. But that first day needed to happen. And it's become, you said, how you mentor. What do you mean? I mean, we at ARC, at my nonprofit, we take people that are out of incarceration and put them through a 12-week boot camp in other construction unions. Mm -hmm. And I show up on the first morning and I say, if you have to be an hour early every morning, Mm -hmm. and if you are not an hour early twice, you're fired. Um, Hmm. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Um, (laughs) Interesting. But like we go on 5 a.m. hikes with them and they're there at four in the morning. Um, Mm -hmm. if they show up twice at 401, they're no longer in and they'll have to wait till the next cohort to try again. So in the same way that Cynthia did that for me, I want them to be ready to work as soon as their bosses pull in, especially with their backgrounds and coming in, um, with a felony on their record where many people won't hire them. You have to be the Mm. best.
Budnick graduated from college with a degree in marketing and a few TV and film credits to his name. And like so many aspiring filmmakers and showbiz hopefuls, he moved to Los Angeles. I packed up a U-Haul, moved cross-country the day of graduation, spent months looking for a job, like ramen noodle, macaroni and cheese, like about to have to move out of the apartment, months looking for a job. Mm. And ultimately... I went back to visit Cynthia in Atlanta, and she was prepping Road Trip. Hmm. Road Trip with Tom Green and Sean William Scott is another raunchy bro comedy of the early 2000s genre. Oh! Oh! I boinked her! Boinked? Yeah, wait, did you just say the word boinked? (laughs) It was also one of Scott Budnick's big breaks. The writer-director was a man named Todd Phillips, who became a big deal himself. He went on to make movies like Old School and Joker. Budnick desperately wanted to work with this guy, so he begged and eventually got a role as a production assistant. That was my first job out of college, and I thought that if I could impress him, um, we could have a, a relationship, and turned out to be a 16-year relationship where I started out as a production assistant and gopher Uh, on Road Trip and ultimately ran his company and produced his movie over a 16-year period. Is there a reason you think you clicked? I think that part of why I'm asking it is plenty of people listening to this may want to be taken under the wing of, mentored by somebody they really admire. When you reflect on it, is there anything you think was kind of like, this is what happened that made it work that wasn't just luck? I mean, it it wasn't smooth, I'll tell you that. Mm. Like, I think, t- to my dismay, I think Todd really did not like me at first. Oh. It was a little rough. And how do you know he didn't like you, may I ask? Oh, I mean, just some of the things he said to me. Uh, the producer would give me certain jobs and he would take them away from me. I mean, it was, it, it was, de- it was pretty obvious at first. But I was just one of those guys that, like, no matter what was thrown at me, I would say done. And then I'd walk away. And I'm like, how am I going to do that? Uh-huh. And then i just figure out how to do it. And then I remember there was... A time where he said, like, Budnick, I need a, a black college step team. Uh, it's, it's 6 o'clock at night. I need it by 6 o'clock in the morning. Mm. They need to be on set at 6 a.m. Like, and I say, done. And I walk away. I'm like, how am I going to find a black college step team? And I ended up that night going around to all of the historically black colleges in Atlanta, like three mm. or four schools, and walking around just asking people about a black college step team found one, told them about the film, got them to say yes, and got them there at six in the morning Mm. the next morning. Mm -hmm. And I think it was just enough of those things where he's like, okay, this guy can really like pull a rabbit out of the hat, say yes, get it done, Uh don't make excuses, right? And I think that was what ultimately did it for me. And also not distracted by feelings of rejection. By the way, not distracted by it, but like I remember going home and crying. Hmm. Like I remember being like, Wow, I stopped my entire career in Los Angeles. I came back to Atlanta to to be working on this film because this director's incredible and I hope to impress him. And I spent weeks not impressing him, right? Mm-hmm. Um, again, it's like resilience, right? Like you like, okay, shake it off, get back, do better. And it paid off. For mm-hmm. sixteen years it paid off. Still's paying off. Yeah. So you finally get on his good side, Todd Phillips' good side. You work on a few movies, including Road Trip, Starsky and Hutch. And I believe it's just a few years 
into being in film production at the age of 33, you become executive producer of The Hangover? Yes, that is correct. What's going on? There's a jungle cat in the bathroom! Okay, okay. Oh, hey, hey. fuck, he's not kidding. There's a tiger in there. No, the Hangover was a film that was brought to me by, by the two writers as a pitch. And I loved it. And I said, can I tell Todd about this? They said, yes. And then all of us worked together to turn it into a script that ultimately was greenlit by Warner Brothers. Mm. You killed it at the box office. Um, this was a huge success. And if you could rewind to that moment in 2009, can you recall back then, what were you thinking? How were you processing this inordinate success? You know what? It's so funny because at that point, like Ed Helms was on The Office, mm -hmm. not a huge star. Bradley Cooper had done Wedding Crashers as like the third lead and Alias. Um, Zach Galifianakis had done a couple films and was doing some great stand-up, but it wasn't, you weren't going out to like the massive movie stars of the time, right? right. Todd was just going to people he really believed in and were, believed were right for the role. But again, it's like nobody believed in this movie and even when a week before it was going to come out, we were predicting to do like $17 million on opening weekend. And this movie Land of the Lost with Will Ferrell was predicted to do like 30 something million dollars. Mm. And I remember opening night, me and Todd and the actors got into a van and went around to movie theaters and just stood in the back of movie theaters. And the laughter was just off the hook at every theater we went to. And we're like, we have to be doing better than they say we're going to be doing. Mm -hmm. And by the end of the weekend, we were the ones at 30 or $40 million. I even forget at this point. And Land of the Lost was something below $20 million. And the whole prediction was flip-flopped. And it just went crazy from there. And did you realize at that moment, holy crap, I've made it. I'm a big-time producer now. I'm not someone that sits and kind of really celebrates like even on the social justice and criminal justice stuff. If we pass a bill, like my mind's just immediately to like, okay, what's, what's, what's next, mm. right? Like how do we capitalize on this momentum? As you're building this hard charging Hollywood career, there's this quieter thing happening in your life. There is one Saturday morning, back around 2003, that instead of going to the beach, you went to a juvenile prison. How come? A friend of mine uh, invited me down to this juvenile hall to be a part of a creative writing class called Inside Out Writers. And I, I walked into this juvenile prison and I sat down at this table with uh, about a dozen kids. Mm -hmm. ages 14, 15, 16 years old, who had committed serious and violent crimes. But when you look at them, they look like little kids. Mm. And when I sit down at the table, I turn to the kid next to me, who's 15 and really, really small. And I said, how are you doing? How was your week? And he said, it was a really tough week. I just got sentenced to 300 years to life in prison. Mm. And I said, what happened? And he said, I stood next to my friend who shot the victim in the butt. The victim was in and out of the hospital in a day. And for standing next to the person with the gun, I ended up getting 300 years to life. And it was in that moment, looking in his eyes, that I realized if that was my kid with my resources, 
They would be out on bail. They wouldn't even be sitting inside that jail. They'd be bailed out that night. Mm -hmm. Not one night would they have spent in a jail. And they would have the best lawyer in Los Angeles and they would get probation. Mm -hmm. But David was going to prison for 300 years to life. And that was shocking, a travesty, disproportionate, unfair, unjust. And I went around the table and every single kid had a story of either physical abuse, sexual abuse, witnessing domestic violence, seeing death at a young age, growing Mm -hmm. up without parents, growing up in the foster care system. Mm -hmm. And it was clear right away that hurt people hurt people. And Mm -hmm. that these kids shouldn't be forever defined by their worst decision and worst act. Mm -hmm. And I said to them on that day that if you guys make the choices to change your life, make amends, do the work on yourself and for the victims in your crime that I'm here every week to teach this class and do whatever I can to be of service. What prompted you to want to be at that table? I understand what you learned once you got there, but what were you looking for that made you go there on a Saturday morning? I think I was looking for purpose. I grew up in Atlanta Uh, to parents that were always like having us be of service, feed the homeless on Thanksgiving, Mm. work at camps for kids with diseases. And then I get to LA and I'm stuck in this bubble where all anyone talks about is writers, directors, actors, and everyone's climbing this ladder and everyone's pushing everyone down to get on top. And I just felt empty inside. I realized I had to find the purpose that I was missing And I had to get out of the world of Hollywood to do that. And it was going down to that juvenile hall that day that made me love living in Los Angeles. Because my whole life was not the entertainment business. My whole life today is not the entertainment business. You needed that balance. Yeah. So then how do you evolve from really immediately making this commitment of I'm going to be here every week with you guys. How do you then evolve to becoming an advocate who's not just teaching creative writing, but I mean, you get in the grind. Show up. Mm. I mean, when I say show up, I don't mean just show up. Like I mean, like Brian Stevenson's famous quote Mm -hmm. is to change the world. You got to get proximate, right? Or to change a life, you got to get proximate, right? right? And that proximity It's everything. Like what fuels me on this is not doing a TV interview or um, working in Sacramento to change laws. Like what fuels me on this are the people, right? If I see injustice or inequality, I want to do something about it, right? If someone goes from the juvenile hall and goes into the prison system and says, I can't get my high school diploma or GED, I'm going to figure out who to contact and how to get in there and who to know to help them get their high school diploma or GED. And I think if you talk to any of the last five corrections secretary that run, ran our entire prison system, they'll probably all say the same thing, which is Budnick is a pain in my ass, <laughs> but I love him because he's like not doing it for his own ego. And he's really focused on helping people and doing the right thing. He is endearing and not just annoying because he's kind of a shiny object and he knows it. He readily uses his celebrity as the hangover guy. I mean, let me give you one more great example 
Forever, they were trying to pass a law. The bill would give inmates serving life without parole sentences for murders they committed as juveniles a chance to ask judges to reconsider their sentences after they serve at least 15 years in prison. The judges could for seven years in a row. They were three votes short in Sacramento. Elizabeth Calvin from Human Rights Watch asked me to come up, and she said, "Can you use your Hollywood card up here? We haven't been able to do this for seven years. Maybe we can help." I said, "I'll do it, but I want to bring six or seven people." Who have gotten out of prison to tell their story as well, right? Because I knew that I could bring them into power, not just the Hangover producer, right? And we went up to Sacramento my first time, and we got a meeting with the, the president of the assembly, the speaker of the assembly, where this whole bill, the fate of this bill, lied. And when we walked in, there were three Hangover posters on the table in Sharpies. There were photographers taking our picture,、mm. but then we were able to segue the conversation. Into the speaker said, "Well, why are you here?" And I said, "We're here on Senate Bill Nine. I brought some people. I want to introduce themselves. They told their stories, and he said, 'This is the most impactful meeting I've ever had in this office as Speaker of the Assembly. Who are the votes you needed?' He gave us the Assembly members. We went to their offices. He called and said they're coming, and we ended up passing that bill after seven years.、Mm. That day, not because of me, I was able to get the door open, but because of the stories of change and transformation and redemption." That blew his mind and blew the other assembly members' minds, and so I then realized that that my superpower was get the door open and then shut up. Or maybe also it's that pairing: get the door open and make sure I've brought people into the room that can push further and further than I possibly could. Amen. The lesson and power there for people who are not superstar producers who have a calling card that will open any door is what. Every single person I work with that have changed their lives, when you ask them, what was it? Was it a moment? Like, what was the biggest turning point in your change? One hundred percent of the time, they speak about a person who showed love, who showed care, who showed mentorship, who showed consistency. That just believed in them、mm-hmm. and was there for them,、mm-hmm. and there's not one person listening to this podcast that can't be that person. After the break, Scott Budnick makes a startling decision to leave the world of broy comedies for good. I think at some point in that process of growth, you just realize that one part of your life is feeding your soul way more than another. This is Art of Power. I'm Arthi Shahani. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org/events. When the first Hangover movie came out, I remember laughing so hard my stomach hurt. This more recent time, however. I winced a bit. Not all the humor ages well. I just wish your friends were as mature as you. They are mature, actually. You just have to get to know them better. Paging doctor, ma'am, in the leopard dress. You have an amazing rack. So of course, I had to ask Budnick about it. Do you ever look back at that and be like, "Oh, why did I do that?" Or is it kind of like it was what it was at the time? I mean, it, I look back on it, and it was. What it was,、um, and I feel like you know we all 
just like just like the kids I teach in juvenile hall. It's like I, I, I always feel like every day I'm on a constant path of growth, right? Mm. But I don't look back on anything kind of with shame. Mm. I think everything is a lesson. Um, I'm really proud of the Hangover films. I had so much fun mm-hmm. making that movie. I mean, it was a seminal experience in my life. Even on Hangover 3... I remember sitting on a mountaintop in Vegas and we were coming in at four in the afternoon and having to shoot till like nine in the morning. And I was getting calls from Governor Jerry Brown and I was like, no, I can't show up in Sacramento to do this. And I was getting calls from young people getting out of prison who were going to be homeless and needed housing and I wasn't there to help. I think at some point in that process of growth, you just realize that one part of your life is feeding your soul way more than another. Explain a little. I mean, you got to follow your heart. I I got off Hangover 3 and was getting so much joy from one side of my life and not as much from the other. I went and saw a movie, 12 Years a Slave, and it hit me so hard in the most profound way. I couldn't move at the end of the film. Lights came up. And like I knew... I needed to follow my heart, follow my passion, starting the nonprofit, getting out of the film business for a while, and just focusing on the people was unbelievable. It was the best five years of my life. It's interesting that a film that you loved made you leave the film business. Yeah, that is ironic, isn't it? So you leave your production company to focus full-time on activism. I spoke with one of your childhood friends, Daryl Trell. He's also a movie producer in L.A. And here is what he had to say about that decision. Can't wait to hear this. Oh, I mean, everybody in town was calling me saying, what the heck is he doing? Like, he's he's at the pinnacle of his career and he's just going to leave the business. Like, everybody thought that was insanity. Best decision ever. The young, incredibly successful movie producer decided to leave it all behind. You're also the producer of the Hangover series? I know. It's a a weird weird disconnection. Scott Budnick quit the production company he'd worked at for more than a decade to found the Anti-Recidivism Coalition, ARC. The Anti-Recidivism Coalition is working to give people who have been in prison a support system. It started by offering mentorship to about a half dozen formerly incarcerated people. Today, Budnick says, ARC has provided 15,000 with counseling, housing, legal help, and employment assistance. It was just so obvious to me what needed to be started, what was kind of lacking in the, in, in, in the space in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And I was very disillusioned by so many of the people. I mean, it's a very, mm-hmm. uh, entertainment's such a narcissistic business, and I'll be honest, it's like 75% of Hollywood would not return my calls Hmm. once I couldn't cast or hire. But the people that did step up were unbelievable. And that's when I got the call from President Obama to join the My Brother's Keeper board. It's when I got a random text from Kim Kardashian saying, I want to learn from you. I want to become a lawyer. And so you really find the ones who are the real ones, right? You find the ones... There's a strong filtering effect. Yeah. Yeah. You lose most, but you have the core. 
so funny. I had to leave so many of the people in Hollywood and go to people who had committed serious crimes to actually find like more morally sound people. Right. Well, who had been convicted of serious crimes. Yeah. Right. For sure. I'm just making the distinction because plenty have committed without being convicted. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. There you go. It's a good distinction, right? (laughs) Um, A very good distinction as we see what's happening with a lot of people in Hollywood right now. Right. Like a lot of people said to me, like your biggest tool in your toolbox for social change is the ability to tell stories. So I knew when I left Mm -hmm. that I was going to continue selling stories. But it wasn't long after I started ARC and I was doing it where I started building the ability to tell bigger stories in film and television that could also make a huge impact. So you quickly realized the power I have for storytelling, I can't give that up. So I need to do these things in tandem. For sure. Scott's breakup with Hollywood was short-lived. Five years after he started ARC, he figured out he needed to wed his passions for activism and for film. So he started a production company that uses entertainment to promote social change. It's called One Community. I mean, it's just the pure mixture of my two worlds. Where we're different than everybody is around every film or television show we make, we run a massive impact campaign where we can use the film, the actors, the story to turn empathy into action and move people to action, whether it's legislative policy change, whether it's just doing good for humanity, but millions of people are seeing a story that ends with them wanting to get active, wanting to be of service, wanting to do something, and then giving them those tools to do that in their communities. Let's take an actual example. Let's dissect it. Just Mercy. What was the plan you designed to spur change through this movie? So I think it's like looking at it as threefold. We look at it as culture change, which is the actual like heart and mind change in the individual, right? Mm -hmm. How do you change culture in the way that they see people? How do they see someone who's incarcerated? We partnered with the American Mm -hmm. Conservative Union and had conservative focused talks about criminal justice reform with a lot of conservative quote-unquote, influencers Hmm. around the country. Mm -hmm. Then we have policy change, right? How do you change laws and policies in various places to make them more fair and more just? We partnered with the National Governors Association and screened the film for multiple governors, Republicans and Democrats, and then ran legislation in partnership with those governors uh, and in partnership with the community groups on the ground In various states, nine different states around Just Mercy. Like getting governors to sponsor legislation? Yeah. And then thirdly, philanthropic change. How do you actually help fund organizations that probably don't have enough funding that are doing good work around the country? Being able to raise three to four million dollars to re-grant that money to organizations. You know, Scott, what you're describing and mapping out in rapid succession It's fascinating because a lot of people say there's power to stories. Um, I I recall in an earlier episode of Art of Power, I got to interview President Barack Obama. As an organizer, he learned there was power in money and in votes. And now as a more seasoned advocate himself, he's like, oh, it's stories. 
because stories mobilize those two things. And what you've done is you've built, you're building an engine that activates the stories because they're not in themselves going to do it, right? You don't just sort of throw it out to the world and think it's going to make a change. You've come to realize you have to basically have a powerful story and then what? Mobilize it, weaponize it, market it, sell it? I mean, I think absolutely. I think it's that next path, right? Someone sits in a theater or at home and is moved by a story. Then what's next, right? Where can they go? So like with Just Mercy, even if you just want to mentor one person, here's a path for you. If you want to bring it to your Bible study or book club, here's this. Or if you want to go and start a program, a new nonprofit, here's the roadmap. If you want to volunteer in this nonprofit, right? So all the different levels of getting someone engaged, I think, is, is what we're looking at after they see something that moves them. You know, you're in an interesting moment, Scott, because social movements are appending Hollywood, there's Me Too, there's Black Lives Matter, there's a lot of change happening from within. You're so many years into a journey that I think more and more people in entertainment want to be into. If you were offering some kind of masterclass to newer entrants, what would you be advising? What has Scott Budnick learned about the power of stories to make change that you didn't necessarily get at the beginning, but that you're enacting now? I mean, for anyone that's going into a business where we have the ability to tell a story that's marketed and distributed all over the world, whatever your role in that is, you have just tremendous power, really for good or for bad. Be responsible with that power. Understand that once you have that platform, that you can use it to every day affect lives. In the Just Mercy campaign that you're describing, it took a really unexpected turn, as I understand it, involving a death row prisoner, Julius Jones in Oklahoma. He was about to be executed. Evidence of racism, as well as a deeply problematic investigation and defense, point to his being wrongfully convicted. Governor Kevin Stitt now holds the power to either allow that execution to continue or grant him clemency. It was, I mean, it is the perfect example So when I heard the story of Julius Jones and believe very strongly that he was innocent and about to be executed by the state of Oklahoma, uh, I was able to reach out to Governor Stitt as the producer of Just Mercy. And through Just Mercy, we were able to build a campaign to fight for Julius Jones. So I was able to fly with Kim Kardashian, who was the one one of the two people that turned me on to the case, Kim and Jason Flom. I was able to fly with Kim to Oklahoma, meet Julius on death row, then meet the family in church, most incredible mom, dad, brother, and sister that just broke our hearts, and then be able to go to the governor's mansion, the only single person that held Julius's fate, and tell this governor what it was like meeting Julius, what it was like meeting the family, and be an advocate uh, it was it was incredibly rewarding. Governor Stitt ended up commuting Julius's sentence mm-hmm. to life without parole. So we still have another fight ahead of us to get Julius out of prison, but we stopped the execution. It was a team. It was an army. 
behind a woman named Cece Jones Davis who led that campaign. And it's something I will be proud of for the rest of my life. What's the power lesson there, Scott? What's the big universalizable lesson from that? Use your power uh, to help people and open doors. Those doors opened and I I got to play a role in, I, I believe, saving an innocent man's life. It strikes me that you also do the follow-up. I mean, doors open, but you have to walk through them. You walk through them. I'm obsessed. I'm obsessed. My lessons from Scott Budnick. One, get in and then get out of the way. Sometimes you are the person who can open doors and draw a crowd, but yours is not the most important story to tell. So invite others along and after you sign a few autographs, stand back. Two, don't be typecast. If you feel called to work on something that seems strange to your colleagues, so what? Listen to your soul. It is speaking to you and only you can hear it. Three, people screw up. Maybe your car breaks down and you're late. Maybe it's something much, much more serious. But you can make a comeback. And to regain other people's trust, show up, show up, show up an hour early. This episode of Art of Power was produced by Sylvia Goodman, with help from Justin Bull, Hina Srivastava, and me, Arthi Shahani. Our executive producer is Kevin Dawson. If you like what you heard, stop for a moment and please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. Go there, click, it's easy, or share the episode with a friend. Nothing like word of mouth. Tell me what you think. On Instagram and Twitter, I'm at Arthi411, A-A-R-T-I. 411. For exclusive offers, you can sign up for the Art of Power newsletter at wbez.org slash AOP newsletter. All right, see you next week. Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.